0: Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.
1: Overview of the Kennedy Emergency Wage Subsidy.
0: Thanks, Mike, and it seems like we, we have lost Kelsey, so he may be having some, uh, some internet difficulties. So as, as you mentioned, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy is intended as a measure in Canada's COVID-19 economic response plan. It's really designed to allow employers to keep employees on payroll and recall those employees who have already been laid off or seen their hours reduced as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's the case even if those employees are unable to actively perform work, as I imagine is the, is the case for most child care centers who are still facing closures. So as Mike mentioned, we're going to leave the specifics of the subsidy uh, to our friend Pravish, who has been kind enough to join us on this webinar. Employers eligible for the CEWS if their revenue has decreased by 15% or more in the month of March, and 30% or more for the months of April and May. And this is generally available at a rate of 75% of eligible remuneration uh, up to a subsidy of $847 per week per employee. Employers are required to use uh, what they call best efforts to top up employee salaries to 100% of pre-crisis levels. However, and again, as, as Pravish will explain further, until the application portal for this becomes available, it remains unclear to us how or whether employers will be required to demonstrate that best efforts have been made in this respect. And as I'm sure is the case for, for many of the childcare centers who are uh, watching today, topping up salaries just may not be financially possible. Now, the wage subsidy will initially be in place for a 12-week period, beginning retroactively from March 15th and continuing to June 6th. And that's broken down into three eligibility periods, the first of March 15th to April 11th, the second, April 12th to May 9th, and the third, May 10th to June 6th. Now, the legislation does permit the government to extend this subsidy for additional periods Continuing up until September 30th, 2020. Now, for the the specifics, and again, what I'm sure everyone is most interested in, uh, I'm going to toss it over uh, to Pravish and and let him speak to some of those details.
2: Thank you. Um, so to begin with, to, to begin with, regarding this the the CEWS program. Um, The three eligibility periods that are provided by the government uh, require the employers, the childcare centers, to to actually make the payments to the employees. The payroll needs to be paid to the staff before this application or the subsidy is received. That is the current legislation as it stands right now. Um, I just want to confirm if everyone can hear me. Okay, um, and so in 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 this situation that we are right now, that is from a childcare center perspective, we need to be very cognizant of the cash outflow that we are providing to uh, fund the payroll before the application portal opens, as well as the time that it will take for the government to reimburse the center for the payroll expenses. As it stands now, within the government has advised us that the portal itself may take two to three weeks to be open for the centers to apply for this CERB benefit, but the actual cash in terms of when the center may receive the cash, it's an, it's an additional five weeks after the date of the application. So from a purely practical perspective, for each childcare center that is looking to use this CEWS program, you need to continue paying your staff from your own reserves, cash reserves, before uh, the government will reimburse you for this amount. Additionally, the three periods that are set out by the government, which are March 15 to April 11, which is the first period, the second period is April 12 to May 9, and the third period is May 10 to June 6. The government has essentially coincided these programs, the, the sorry, the time periods, with the curb benefit periods as well. So what they are trying to attempt, or what the principle here is, if an employee is receiving the curb benefit, they do not want the employers to double dip by claiming CEWS subsidy, the wage subsidy, for the same period. Additional clarification was, I obtained additional clarification last night um, in terms of how this will work. So in the event that you have already laid off staff for the previous period, which was March 15 to April 11, you will not be able to put employees back retroactively beginning March 15. What you will be allowed to do is bring employees back today, beginning today as in this period of April 12 to May 9. And that is what will, and the amount of salary that you're paying out the wage subsidy. This is fairly confusing to most practitioners out there right now because. The exact wording in the legislation states as a double negative, which essentially ends up stating not without remuneration for 14 or more days. And what that means in real world application is the employees need to be back on payroll to be eligible for the pay that you would pay between April twelve to May nine, the current period, to qualify for the CEWS payment from the government for this reimbursement um additionally as most childcare centers may have their supervisor or executive director with one or two other key staff members still working on full-time basis the government the, what we need to take sorry what we need to take into consideration is when this amendment was made to the CWS program they also offered 100% reimbursement for the employer paid EI and CPP contributions however those 100% reimbursement for contributions for CPP and EI is only for employees that have been brought back on payroll but are not working. This is an important distinction because as your account, uh, from an accounting perspective and to qualify and calculate the grant correctly or the subsidy correctly, the CPP and EI paid for the supervisor or the executive director is not, you will not be, recipient of the 100% uh, subsidy for EI and CPP contributions, but you will receive 100% of CPP and EI contributions of the employer portions back for the employees that are being brought back on payroll but are not working. This is an important distinction. And within these periods, so if we look at the period from March 15 to April 11, if you laid off employees between March 15 to April 11, and they have applied for SERB or EI, in the event that you run into a situation where you are now applying for CEWS and you do receive the CEWS subsidy from the government, we. The centers do need to communicate to the employees that they will be required to pay back the $2,000 or $2,000 of CERB that they may have received. How, the exact mechanism in terms of how the employees will give this money back to the government is still unclear. We do not know if the checks or the cash reimbursement will be asked by government before December 31st or are the employees supposed to give this money back to CRA on their own personal tax return next year. So that being said, In the event that an employee has received CERB, the centers do need to communicate to the employees that they will be required to pay this money back. And that is to prevent double dipping of CWS wage subsidy and uh, the employee being recipient of the curb benefit. So the main main point here from our perspective or as if from accounting slash tax slash cash flow perspective is going to be, each center should be very cognizant of the time delay that may occur. The timelines provided by the government are simply timelines right now. We do not know if they will be able to keep up with those timelines or it, or that will take a longer time period for the center to receive the weight subsidy back. And the weight subsidy applications are supposed to be done at the end of each period. So for example, When the portal opens, you will, if that opens before May 9, you will only be able to apply for the wage subsidy for the time period between March 15 and April 11. The reason behind that is we need to demonstrate, we as a childcare centers, we need to demonstrate that we actually paid the remuneration before we can claim the subsidy. Because the the portal slash application is still not open, we don't know what additional questions or information requests See, uh, Service Canada or the CRA may ask from us, but based on the information that is available to us right now, we do need to prove that we have paid uh, remuneration to our employees. I saw a question come up. Uh, sorry, one second. Can you are we able to? So, in terms of one of the questions that that was raised in terms of if the center is closed and we, and we reopen the center back in June, would we qualify for wage subsidy? The answer is no. You need to pay the employees. If, if you have not put them back on payroll, for example, between, so if you laid off your employees on May March, sorry, March 15th, and you did not actually have any payroll payments before the paid of June six, you will not be, recipient of the cws weight subsidy the principle behind this program is to encourage employers to continue paying your staff out of your cash reserves and then receive a reimbursement uh, sorry i saw a couple other questions come up um, one second I'm just, i just need to take a look at the questions one second that uh, service expanded part-time workers can be hired the s- second follow-up question was in terms of hiring employees on part-time basis back, um, that one i I'm unable to answer that question with complete clarity right now because that is too new of information to us in terms of how they're going to implement that in in the reason I say that is because CWS, the calendar emergency wage subsidy is only for full time employees. Part time employees do not qualify for that wage subsidy. So it, it is still a little bit of a new information right now for us to give a definitive answer on that uh, question. Um, Uh, sorry, another question regarding CERB for some employees who have received two payments of $2,000 each, totaling $4,000 as of today. Um, the exact mechanism, again, is un, has not been clarified, but the employee, if you were to put that employee back on payroll beginning April 12, yes, that the second payment will be subject to a clawback, and the employee will be required to pay that money back to CRA in some shape or form. We just don't know how they're going to ask for that reimbursement.
1: And on that note, Purvish, I have noted that the government has actually put out an alert on its CERB application portal that some Mm -hmm. people have been mistakenly getting double benefits. So that is an error on the government's end that they're going to have to try to figure out.
2: Absolutely. And a hundred percent that is correct. And the only interaction or I guess, the interaction with the CWS for that $2,000 that they have received is the employee may be completely eligible for the first $2,000 payment, which was falling in the time period of March 15 to April 11. The second $2,000 payment would just pay to them in error. If that employee is brought back on payroll of the, of the child care center, then that employee would have to pay that $2,000 back to CRA in the event that the psych employee has not been brought back on payroll, and he or she may still qualify for the $2,000, but may have received the payment in advance of, of what they were supposed to receive. So, it unfortunately, it's a case-by-case uh, analysis to understand if that employee is rightfully eligible for the CURB benefit of the second payment of $2,000, or was it an error on their part? I absolutely agree with you that that was an error on part of the government, and that has caused confusion with, with the taxpayers.
1: It, it, yeah, it's understandably there's confusion for uh, the employees who are receiving these benefits. And I often get questions from clients, well, what should I tell my employee about what they should do with Service Canada or CRA? Mm-hmm and you know i would i would love for us to be able to advise every single employee perfectly what they should do but my real advice is we you know you're the employer you're not the employee's accountant or representative to the government Correct. so be very cautious about even giving employees advice about how they are now dealing with the government about possible overpayments
2: absolutely um I completely agree with that because, again, it's as I said, it's a case by case analysis of trying to figure out if the employee was rightfully eligible for that or not. And because the programs have been changing pretty much on a daily basis, um, it's unclear if if today the employee may not qualify for the two thousand, but tomorrow they may do. So I agree with your assessment that it, they would have to advise the uh, we would have to advise uh, charge centers to be careful in terms of how they, or what they tell their employees in terms of how to deal with that $2,000. Mistaken payment, for example.
1: And Purvish, thank you very much for that. I know that we were, I think we've slotted about an hour for this presentation, and I know we have some prepared questions to get to, uh, in addition to all the Q&A questions we're getting right now, which is fantastic. Kelsey, are you able to jump back into the hosting duties on this?
3: I, I am, thanks Mike, uh, well, hopefully it will last this time and uh, hopefully my audio is a least slightly better. Um, I guess there are a lot of people on my street right now doing a lot of stuff on the internet. Um, one of the, and I, I think um, I was not aware of this and I missed the, the discussion, but there are a lot of questions about um, apparently the CEWS, the wage subsidy, only being available for full-time employees. And so Pravish, they're, they're asking, did you say that? Is that what I just heard? That's correct, and, that uh, is
2: correct. You, you, it's only available for full-time employees. Uh, they do not want, uh, as, as of right now, if the employee works part-time during the week, the refund is, uh, the subsidy is not available.
3: Okay, so then, so this is new information that uh, that you just got?
2: Uh, yeah, it was clear. I, I had this clarification yesterday evening.
3: Okay. So that, yeah. So because I know in some of our previous conversations, even amongst ourselves here in preparing for this chat and some yeah. of the discussions that, uh, that we've had at, at our firm with, with clients, um, we were concerned because, you know, there are part-time people who would do better with the, um, going on the the two thousand dollar four-week CERB then they would be correct being recalled but our concern uh, of course as the employer was and uh, Charles mentioned this yesterday was what if you know all we all we really should be worried about as employers is making sure that we are eligible for the CEWS and a whole bunch of complications but it seems like that is even an issue with respect to part-time now are there Um, do we know what the definition of full-time hours is, um, for
2: this? They have not, they have not defined full-time hours right now. What they keep going back or the government keeps going back to the definition of pre-crisis compensation, but not defining or not distinguishing between part-time hours versus full-time hours. Yes. so, so some, some more, um, some more gray area. Issues that they're creating. Yeah, some more gray area, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, one second. Yeah. Okay.
3: I mean, that was a, a large part of the questions that came in in a flurry as I as I jumped back on and I missed, obviously, what you said the first time. But um, let's see what else we have here.
1: Well, I think one thing that we should really review is this is a wage subsidy. So, what are wages? What what kind of payments to the employees will constitute wages that can be subsidized with this government assistance?
2: So, the it it, it it's baseline remuneration is how it has been defined, uh, and what baseline remuneration includes is in within specific to childcare center. It will be taxable benefits, so in terms of the benefit plan, uh, as well as the baseline remuneration, which was a day-to-day uh, salary. What they are excluding or the examples within that have been provided in terms of the exclusion are sort of like company vehicle benefits and things like that, which apply more to sectors outside of childcare uh sector or, or stock options and things like that. So the pre-crisis remuneration, prior to March 15th is what is being used as, base, as, a, as baseline wage compensation. So, within Child Care Center, that, that would essentially mean the salaries plus the taxable benefits that may be adding, added on to the employee's uh, compensation and that they could include vacation, for example, because vacation pay would be considered a taxable benefit. So, that that vacation pay would be considered, uh, would be eligible for the CWS
1: wage subsidy. That's a, I think that's a good point. And Charles, can we hear from you a little bit? Um, because it, it's not clear which employers, at least right now on this, on this webinar, it's not clear which employers will be entitled to what kind of wage subsidy. What other options are available to uh, employers?
4: In terms of benefits from the government, like
1: in terms of benefits for the government, or otherwise, just trying to do right by the employees and make sure they get compensation during this time. Gotcha. Okay.
4: Um, and so, for some of you, we may beyond, uh maybe beyond this point right now. But one of the things we talked about a lot, kind of leading up to the rollout of these benefits, and on the last webinar that we did was uh, using vacation. So. Um, it, the answer is whether you can do this or not. Kind of depends on kind of a situation you're in. So if there's collective agreements, they may have language that alter the general rules. Or uh, if you have policies or employment contracts, but in general, you can allow <coughs> your employees to take vacation for times like this in order to avoid having to take the step of doing a layoff or putting them on a pay, an unpaid leave or uh, whatever the case may be. so the good thing, as we just heard from Kurdish is that um, vacation is going to be counted as wage for the CEWS. So if you do allow your employees to take paid vacation during this time, it should be eligible um, for the subsidy. Um, and then, so with that, and then again, this depends on the contracts you have, collective agreements if you have them, policies if you have them. In general, um, employees do have the ability to schedule vacation for their employees. So unless you have something in a collective agreement or a policy or a contract that says you can't, you can actually take the step of telling employees that they're going to be taking their paid vacation during the time when you can't be offered it.
1: I, Thanks, Charles. That I appreciate that. Uh, Brendan, I want to loop you in because we haven't uh, had you uh, contribute yet. Um, Can you tell us from your perspective, what are some of the uh, things that uh, a a daycare not-for-profit employer really should know uh, so far, uh, as far as we know, uh, about the wage subsidy program and what considerations should they keep in mind?
5: Yeah, so the, the two things that I've been sort of talking about in, in communicating with my clients, um, just sort of doing email blasts over the last little while, and I I recognize a lot of the names that are popping up in the questions, is really just talking about um, my biggest concern isn't whether or not the center uh, qualifies or is eligible uh, in general for the uh, Wage subsidy, and by that I mean meeting the 15% or the 30%. I can go deeper into that if people care to hear more about that, but that's it's really more around the uh, as as provisionally to the cash flow of the or the cash position of the uh, of the entities, so the child care centers, and, and meaning that it's quite possible that this money showing up um, to the center could be very late. And uh, Pervish did a, a bit of a A lead sort of time lead out on this estimated, saying, you know, three weeks to get the portal up and running, um, and then maybe five weeks for the first payment to come in. So if your center is in, uh, doesn't have the resources to completely float comfortably the periods in which it intends to take advantage of, then I think you need to to step back and, and think about that from an operational perspective. It, uh, I don't. I don't see a, a lot of risk in you eventually getting the money. It's more um, about the timing of it, and can you? Uh, almost ironically, can you afford to take this this free money um, uh, from a time perspective? Um, the the other thing that came up just a, a few minutes ago was about the loan, the forty thousand dollar loan. I personally think this is a bit of a red herring for childcare centers, um, in that I think if you're going after $40,000, um, you probably have bigger problems. I, I think it, it, it's not a big enough number to to change the, the landscape for you. Um, I would also have just a few concerns about the, and this would go back to the lawyers in the room, but um, what sort of liability the board members might have if they're not able to repay it um, uh, eventually. And so uh, I'm not sure about that, but I would say that um, if I was a board member of a childcare center, I would probably be hesitant to to apply for that loan, um, and uh, and so that those are, those are my comments.
1: Um, thanks, I appreciate that, Brendan. Um, the the CEWS really is kind of a development from what the government initially said that there was going to be a 10% wage subsidy that would basically function as um, you can deduct 10% of the payroll remittance uh, that you would have to make to the Receiver General. And I'll open this up to everybody else. What is now going to be the interplay between this 75% candidate emergency wage subsidy and that 10% wage subsidy program that was initially announced by the government? So the way
2: that CWS the 75% wage subsidy is to interact with the 10% wage subsidy, temporary wage subsidy that was announced, is in the event that you have already claimed the 10% temporary wage subsidy, you need to reduce your 75% claim by the 10%. So your claim for CEWS should be for 65% of the wages paid. So that is, that is the clarification from the government on this issue in terms of how the two programs will interact with each other and they both of them deal with the amounts paid not uh, in in terms of the amounts paid so if you had a payroll run in the last week of March and you you did apply for the 10% you did not sorry you you remitted only 90% then that implies that you took the 10% temporary wage subsidy. And when you, qualify, when, when you apply for your CEWS weight subsidy, you should be applying only for 65%, not the full 75%. And to clarify, just one, one clarification here, that 10% weight subsidy was on the actual wages, not just the remittance amount. It was, you were supposed to reduce your payroll taxes by the amount of your uh, weight subsidy that you have calculated you were still supposed to pay the full CPP and EI. If you were using Ceridian, which is a very, which tends to be very popular with childcare centers to execute the payroll, Ceridian allowed you to just input that amount of the 10% weight subsidy, but the calculations or the working papers in terms of how you arrived at that at that weight subsidy amount are supposed to be maintained separately. So, Seridian has pushed the liability or the responsibility of calculating the wages of wage subsidy amount on the 10% back onto the employers.
1: Thanks, appreciate that Purvish. Um, Christina, can you maybe pick a, a nice juicy question out of our Q&A line and see if we can give some more direct tailored information?
0: All right, um, well, I'm not sure if, if this one is juicy, but I was in the in the process of typing out an answer, so I'll just uh, cover that one first and then maybe find something juicier. Um, so I, I've seen a couple questions with respect to the uh, application process, if there are multiple ways uh, for employers to apply, and I think just generally speaking, and as is the unsatisfying answer, uh, to many of these questions we'll just have to wait and see about what that process looks like, what the portal looks like. Um, and, and I've seen a couple questions that the My Business account is perhaps not the uh, the most functional thing uh, to work with, but that's a, a wait and see. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of questions uh, with respect to the, the CPP. And EI deductions, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, perhaps, Pervish, if you can speak some more sure. about that. Um, sure. And and I think what uh, what our employers are are looking to know is um, perhaps some clarity with respect to whether they they can have employees come back and do some work uh, versus if they're not working, what's the impact there. <laughs>
2: for sure so so i'll break I'll, I'll use an example of say for example uh, an employee base of 15 employees so out of 15 employees say for example we have our executive director as one employee and we have 14 other employees if you were to bring back 14 employees back onto payroll beginning april 12 and out of the 14 employees if only four employees were assisting you with program planning or some kind of they were, they were providing some kind of a service or work back to the child care center, the CPP and EI for those four employees do not qualify for 100% of refund of CPP and EI. Within the legislation, they have defined it as not, they're back on payroll, but not working, i.e. not providing any services back to the center. So in my example, the executive director is communicating with the board, dealing with lawyers, dealing with accountants. That executive director is considered working because he or she is providing services to the employer. So his or her CPP is not subject, can, you cannot claim 100% of, her, of the employer portion of CPP and EI back. For the four other employees who are providing services in some shape or form, be that program planning, um, Or, 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 uh, staffing plan, or something like that, they are deemed to consider they're deemed to be providing services. So, their CPP and EI is again not eligible to uh, for the 100% refund of CPP EI. The remaining 10 employees that were brought back on payroll but are not providing any service or doing any work for the center, their CPP and EI contributions the employer portion are eligible for the 100% refund. The not working part, sorry, the definition of not working in CWS is not providing any services to the center. If they're not, not providing any services to the center, then their CPP and EI, the employer portion is eligible for the 100% reimbursement. In terms of, again, the exact mechanics of how we are going to apply for that, we still need to wait to see what the application portal looks like.
1: I think that was a really good um, overview, uh, Pervish, Thank you for that. Brendan, I want to uh, pull you back in again. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the impact of funding. Uh, And obviously, a lot of child care providers and, in fact, a lot of uh, not-for-profit providers do get a lot of money from the government. The government has said the CEWS is not available to publicly held employers. So do you know if there is a particular threshold of government funding that would disentitle a daycare to the CEWS overall? And can you kind of explain uh, what the implications are uh, or the practical considerations are for a child care centre that is being funded uh, to a degree by the City of Toronto, for example?
5: Sure. So, uh, first of all, there's nothing that I've seen in the legislation that disqualifies uh, a a standard run-of-the-mill registered charity not-for-profit, which uh, I would lump a... uh, a child care center into. So at this point, um, it's uh, it's my understanding that every child care center fits the the initial description of uh, or, or eligibility requirements of, of being able to take advantage of the wage subsidy.
1: And in fact, the, I think the legislation or at least the government information specifically considers not-for-profits and charities will be eligible, perhaps on different uh, yeah. calculations of the revenue loss, but they are Clearly eligible. Yes, and that's important
5: to know. the 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 not for or the the entities that they were speaking to initially are are not those that are included in the childcare sector. Um, I won't go into a list of who they are, but these are you know municipalities, for instance, uh, or or other entities of the like. So um, that's the first consideration. Um, uh, in terms of the amount of government funding, um, that's not going to be uh, a consideration either. I I should clarify uh, one comment about the overall eligibility um, uh, in terms of financial loss or loss of revenue. I think it's important to lump uh, childcare centers into two different groups, one being the the largely uh, subsidized centers um, and the more full fee centers. So the full fee center calculation is pretty straightforward. Um, uh, with one caveat, that being whether or not the board elected to either refund or credit the the ten days of service that were not offered in March. So by that I mean, if, uh, for instance, the childcare Center that my child goes to, the 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 the, uh, the policy was to recognize the revenue for the whole month, regardless of whether the services were delivered. Um, some centers have have made the argument that, well, you know, what uh, children were able to. Uh, stay during the strike and we didn't charge you for that. So we're just going to, you know, let's, let's call let's call it even. And we're going to recognize that revenue for those types of centers. You're likely not going to qualify for uh, the uh, wage subsidy in March. Um, and, um, and so without making huge blanket statements here, I, I would always prefer to speak directly with, uh, with a client just to make sure I got have all the facts, but generally speaking, a full fee uh, center Um, that refunds or credits their fees for those 10 days um, should qualify. Uh, Government funding is uh, uh, exempt from the calculation um, for uh, determining the financial loss so that we can put the full fee centers over to the side. A little bit more complex are the fully subsidized centers. Um, And, and most specifically, what what is the uh, April advance on fees uh, fee subsidy, um, and what is the potential uh, second uh, March advance? And I'm not saying the March second advance, but the second advance uh, given for March that I don't know if many centers have got yet, if any. This is a this is a little bit more complicated. Um, you know, I think that the it seems to me that possibly Toronto Children's Services is, is uh, continuing to float quote unquote fee subsidy to centers i'm not sure that that's exactly what it is um i think it's going to be important to speak with your channel children's services representative about that um uh but my my overall sort of if common sense prevails here my overall sense is that um that if this is supposed to be fee subsidy that it hasn't been earned um and and i would still uh implore all of you to have a direct conversation with your accountant your auditor if it's me talk to your child uh, Children's Services representative um, as well, just to make sure that you're, you're, you're all on the same page. Um, but, uh, but generally speaking, that's the only wrinkle right now, as far as I can see, uh, related to the 15% loss uh, in, in March and the 30% loss in April and May is, is um, does a center that gets floated some money called fee subsidy in, in, in April, does that mean they've earned that? Is that revenue or Is that something that's going to be treated uh, differently down the road?
1: Great. That's very helpful, Brandon. Thank you. Uh, Christina, do you have another question to take out of our queue? You're going to have to unmute yourself, Christina.
0: That does tend to help. so I'm looking at um, a question now from Kathy and, and perhaps this is jumping back, someone that and may have been answered in Pravish's last uh, discussion, um, but she had asked if employees are brought back, does that mean that they can't be working? Uh, and the answer to that is again, as, as Pravish explained, no, uh, they can be working, but it's a judgment call for the center whether having them do some work versus the the potential um rebate is is worthwhile uh, so yeah, I, I, I see mean. a number of other questions with respect to the announcement and and i might be jumping ahead here uh, that the serb can be accessed by part-time employees uh, and given the discussion that we've had about the CWS and part-time employees, um, some of our um, our employers are wondering: then, can you rehire the part-timers and still let them access the CERB if the center is also looking for that wage subsidy?
2: So, regarding regarding the new announcement of the. Regarding CERB, the new announcement made of like they can continue working part time and make up to a thousand dollars, and in terms of how that will interact with CWS, at this point I will need we will need to do more research because that is too new of an announcement, and there have been no changes made to CWS uh, say on, on the announcements made to CWS to to understand how that will be taken into consideration. So. Unfortunately, at this point, we don't have any clear answer on that. When we do, we will be happy to share, but at this stage, it's, un, it's unclear in terms of how that will interact with CWS. Sorry, we don't have, I don't have a clear answer on that.
1: Um, let, let me float this one out to you, Charles. Um, and, and this is kind of more of an employment law uh, question. Um, what do we have to keep in mind uh, about uh, employees who have been put on quote-unquote layoff who may be very long-term employees?
4: Uh, so in, in terms of what they might be owed as a result of being... On rail, right?
1: Yeah, what they might be owed or whether they could make a wrongful dismissal claim.
4: Okay, so uh, the answer to that, like most of the answers we have is always going to be it depends. And it depends on a number of things, uh, like whether they're unionized, what's in the collective agreement, what's in the contract, um, all that kind of thing. Generally, um, where you Lay someone off, and there's no right to lay off. Then an employee could make what's called a constructive dismissal argument, um, which would allow basically give them access to their termination and severance obligations. It remains to be seen a little bit, given the current circumstances, because there's so many employers affected, and it's completely beyond the control of the employer and all those other things. How um, a court or an arbitrator might deal with that kind of argument Um, but generally um, the ESA requires that if we laid off for 13 at least 13 weeks in a 20-week period and then up to 35 weeks if uh, certain types of payments are being made um, along the way we have seen I believe I believe it's Nova Scotia for example has a similar actually it's different but they have temporary layoff provisions in their Employment Standards Act, and they've, the government has actually moved to suspend those during the course of the emergency. Uh, it remains to be seen whether the Ontario government will be doing that, but it is something I know that has come up in that this rule in the ESA can kind of get twisted sometimes by certain interested parties. And it's, we're kind of hoping that the Ontario government will do something about it, but it is. Uh, it has to be at least 13 weeks, so they do have some time to kind of make that adjustment if they see
1: fit to do so, and hopefully they do. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see what the interplay is going to be because we have the common law on the one hand, which says essentially that, uh, you know, a unilateral change to the employee's detriment by the employer could be considered a, a termination. On the other hand, we have the legislation which says it's okay to lay somebody off as long as it doesn't exceed the limits of the temporary layoff, being like you said, the 13 weeks in a 20-week period, for example. But under the Employment Standards Act, under the legislation, a layoff is defined as being a week of work where the employee makes less than half of their regular earnings. So there, there's kind of a, a deeming of, of what constitutes a layoff. So if somebody normally has five shifts and they only get two, Well, that's a week of layoff, according to the Employment Standards Act. Um, But here's the other thing, that the the layoff weeks do not include weeks where that employee is not available or not able to work. And we're in a situation right now where daycares are ordered to be shut. So as far as I can tell, uh, under the Employment Standards Act, I don't really think it's possible for there to be a layoff that exceeds the temporary layoff provisions and therefore counts as a deemed termination under the Employment Standards Act. So now we have to go back to, well, what does the common law say? What the common law says is you get reimbursed based on what you would have earned but for the termination. And we are in unprecedented uh, territory right now uh, with, you know, how, well, how, what would we say somebody could have reasonably earned in this situation where businesses are being required by law to shut down? Um, so, you know, would somebody even be eligible or entitled to the same kind of uh, damages for a wrongful dismissal claim at common law today that they would have been back in January and February? I just don't know. And especially if an employer is eligible for the CEWS, where they might be able to have the employee stay home but still subsidize 75% of their wages, well, that's going to constitute, in my view, a pretty serious failure to mitigate and really should bring down the wrongful dismissal damages that an employee theoretically would be entitled to under the common law. But let's switch gears a little bit now. We've Before the C- CERB came into play, we were having discussions with our clients about Supplemental unemployment benefits do we have an indication now of how supplemental unemployment benefits uh, which by the way is is basically a top-up program under employment insurance uh, that allows an employer to give those top-ups without reducing the employment insurance benefits that the employee receives Charles and Christina and Purvish or Brendan if you know do we have an indication now of how SUB plans are going to interact with people who are receiving the CERB benefits?
2: I do not have details on that. Um, Everything that we have read or everything we have researched in terms of legislation seems to talk about Workshare program and not the sub-plan. So unfortunately, I don't have answers on terms of how the sub-plan is going to interact with SERP or CEWS.
4: Yeah, and that's, that's, I have the, the same answer. The only thing I would say about sub plans is uh, they make, cause we had a lot of questions leading up to and after our last webinar about sub plans and whether to register for them, because when they're not related to uh, pregnancy parental benefits, they have to be registered with DI and it takes time and all that sort of thing. It might be something that you look into setting up once we um, find our way on a path kind of back to normal because you may be able to, you may have people out on EI after that, after the service been done in order to ramp up back to normal businesses. And that might be a, a good time to have to consider a sub plan. One thing I will say is that for any plan that's not already registered, if you are dealing with a unionized environment, you want off, you know, you, they always want you to sign LUs to make agreements to do that kind of thing. Any sort of sub-plan that you're considering, you should probably make clear to any union you're dealing with that it's being done on a gratuitous basis because the last thing you want is to be signing an LOU saying you're going to institute this plan and then it, you know, it falls through or something goes wrong or they start filing grievances to start having it apply to employees that you never intended it to apply to. So it's it's one thing to consider, maybe not so relevant right now, but maybe at the back end this thing start ramping up.
1: Thanks for that, Charles. That's good. Um, I personally have been involved in drafting some letters of understanding. And when I do that, just make sure you cross all your T's and dot your lowercase J's and uh, make sure you've got language in there that says this will not be subject to a grievance. And so long as your union is willing to sign off on that, I think you're in quite good shape. Let's go back to the uh, Q&A queue. Q&A queue. Christina, uh, what's what what's another question that we can address for our uh, attendees?
0: So a question again, i'm I'm seeing a lot um, and this is more of an employment law uh, perhaps logistics question is for employees who perhaps are part-time and would be better off accessing the CERB, um, should those employees be strategically laid off, uh, for example, to maximize their benefits? Um, is is that a consideration that employers should be making when they're considering how to move forward? And I think my thoughts on that, which I, I think are shared, is that the the centers need to be looking out for the the best interests of the the center and trying to maximize and sort of uh, game the system as it were to make sure employees are getting uh, the most money in their pockets when perhaps they would not have been earning those amounts pre-crisis uh, may may run into some problems.
1: Thanks Christina. Uh, again <clears throat> and, and- you know not to belabor the point, but you know the the question keeps coming up about uh, this uh, apparently this exclusion of part time workers. Pravish, do you understand whether that means they were part time yeah, so, prior to the crisis or whether they 're being rehired now on a part time basis?
2: Yeah, I apologize to everyone on the call right now. I was looking at my I was looking at my notes and I misspoke. Part-time employees qualify for CWS. Part-time employees do not qualify for the 100% refund of EI and CPP benefits. I'm, I apologize to everyone on the call. There have been too, a lot of details surrounding the CWS program, so uh, I, I apologize. So, just to so we all breathe a
1: collective sigh of relief. That's every, good every, everyone
2: can breathe a collective sigh, and I'm, I truly apologize for this. It's, it's a lot of okay. detail, and, and, and I misspoke.
1: And I think that makes sense, too, because what we've heard from the government is we have options about whether we bring people back to full time or whether we tell them to stay home. So we basically bring them back to zero time, but can potentially still completely top up their wages. Uh, so it's good to know that we still have that. We should still have that flexibility in how we assign the work, uh, to what degree we can assign the work. And it's going to be different from workplace to workplace, but uh, good. We have that settled now, so that's good. Um, uh, so, so here's another question. Is the CEWS only available for nonprofit child care centers? Um, so, my understanding is that the CEWS, the legislation doesn't speak to child care centers being profit or for profit. It talks about workplaces. And the government has been very clear that the size of the workplace doesn't matter. Really, what seems to matter is whether or not it's a publicly held. Uh, employer, publicly held business. So things like local governments, hospitals, and schools will not qualify. Um, it, correct me if I'm wrong, has anybody heard any different about whether for-profit or not-for-profit matters when it comes to CWS eligibility for childcare?
2: Not to the best of our understanding. Uh, the uh, the wording was exclude. I agree with the understanding that you have that they excluded public service bodies, but they did not make a distinction between for profit or non for profit child care centers.
3: Purvis- And I apologize if I'm choppy again, everyone. I'm going to try to jump in because I've seen a bunch of questions. Um, Charles talked about the subplans and the CERB. What about employees who might currently be receiving subplan payments, whether it be on a uh, pregnancy and parental leave or sickness benefits from their employer? Would those subplan payments be eligible for the CWS as
2: well? I really oh, apologize. We, not on the, we yeah, I do not know because it is so, a, as I mentioned earlier. The only part where uh, the CWS talks about this workshop program. They have made no references to sub plan or the payments of that we just you just mentioned. So I don't have an answer on that right now. We are hoping to hopefully we will have some clarification on this in the next couple of days before the portal opens. But right now, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have a definitive answer on that matter.
1: Here's another burning question, and I can't believe we haven't got to it yet. How much is the CEWS? How much wage subsidy can our uh, clients expect to receive from the government?
2: So there. So I'll, I'll, I'll split this answer in two parts. I'll talk about the employees first, and talk about the cap for the employer period. So for employees, it is capped up to 75% of their wages, up to $847 per week. The maximum salary on which they will provide the CWS 75% wage subsidy is $58,700. But as an employer, they have not put a cap on this similar to temporary wage subsidy program, which was capped at $25,000 per employer. so as an employer, we they, they don't they have not put caps. So employees, uh, sorry, employers of like, with ten employees or employers of hundred employees, everyone quali- like as long as they meet the decline in revenue, they would qualify for the CWS program. Um, an important point to make on this note is if you have staff who make more than fifty eight thousand seven hundred dollars, and you continue. Uh, receiving services from them, assuming they're not laid off, that the difference if the employer, sorry, if the employee was making a hundred thousand dollars, the employer is the child care center is responsible for hundred percent of the remaining difference between the hundred minus the fifty-eight thousand dollars of salary. You're completely responsible for that, including the CPPEI benefits and so forth. You will not receive you will not receive reimbursement of any salaries or, or
1: once they exceed 58700 The 75% that could be paid to, or that could be subsidized per employee. Um, previously, the government basically spelled out a formula that had more or less three parts. 75 um, percent of what they're earning now during the crisis sorry the greater of 75 percent of what they're earning during the crisis and the lesser of their full during crisis weekly earnings and 75 percent of pre-crisis has that changed with the legislation
2: that part hasn't changed and again this is where the complexity lies with up, with the actual, practical implementation of this, of this formula. What the additional facet here, or the additional perspective here in terms of what you just said, is we also need to look at if employees have received, if there's a cut in their pay versus they're going to continue with existing pre-crisis wage level. Because the formula differs once you reduce the wages. If you reduce the wages, that's a different calculation. I don't want to get into too much into, into the weeds of the calculation, but it does it does end up with two different sets of calculations that you have to do to ensure that you are applying the formula correctly. And unfortunately, it is again on a case by case basis. It's, it's not a generalized number that we can give out right now, unfortunately.
1: Thanks, I appreciate that, Pervish. And I appreciate everybody asking questions. We have about 60 open uh, questions in the queue right now, so there's a lot of them. Um, And we're doing our best to to answer some of those. Great, Kelsey's doing his best to work on some of them. Uh, Brendan, here's a question. If the center currently has a surplus, uh, can the center use their surplus to try to? keep their employees afloat now and then pay for that or, and then apply for that. So I guess both Brandon and Purvish and then apply for that wage subsidy.
5: Yeah. So that's, that's basically the only route I see at the, or the, that's the most prudent route at the moment. Um, uh, An organization's uh, cash position currently um, might be, might have a few strings attached to it. So you've got the part that is your, your reserve, as, as you said, Mike, Um, this is, your uh, sort of free cash flow, your uh, unrestricted net assets. You might also have some cash in the bank that is uh, uh, parent fee deposits that you took for say uh, the equivalent of last month's rent. Um, You might have some uh, stability funding in there. Uh, You might have some, uh, some other stuff that's in your overall cash. So, and GICs, I would roll your investments in in there as well. Um, So, when a center is deciding whether or not it's going to take advantage of this plan, uh, it's going to be important as I've counseled uh, all of my clients, um, to take your cash position today or whatever day it was you were doing it and back out the money that isn't yours, so to speak, you know, uh, and then um, figure out whether you can afford this. There are going to be some centers that are going to um, essentially use parent fee deposits to finance, this program, knowing that they're going to get the money at the end. Um, uh, That's an operational issue uh, that is, again, going to be a case-by-case basis. Um, I don't think there's anything necessary that should preclude you from doing that if you've got uh, reasonable assurance that you're going to get repaid and that you've otherwise got uh, net assets or reserve uh, commensurate with being able to do it. By that, I mean you might have a scenario where uh, a center's got GICs locked in over on this side, and, and the cash is, uh, in order to um, float ca- uh, payroll in advance, they need to dip into something that might otherwise uh, be considered to be parent fee deposits or something that they shouldn't be spending right now. So um, th- to answer your question, Mike, uh, the, the, the reserves that they have in place are there uh, to be able to take advantage of this program. Um, and my feeling is that, uh, if they can afford to do so, um, this is a, this is an opportunity to to sort of cover wages for their staff, um, for sort of 25 cents on the dollar.
1: So here's one for Charles and Christina. Can we reinstate some of our staff, but not others?
4: Sorry. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any reason why you can't. It kind of all depends. Like there may be seniority provisions uh, if you have collective agreements and things of that nature. So any kind of normal. So if, and it also it's, it's colored by what you've done already. So if you've laid people off, then there could be recall provisions there's seniority to be worried about. So any of the normal um, considerations would apply. I think. What I'm hearing and we we might not know is that given your circumstances when you do recall part of the workforce back or all the workforce back you may be eligible to receive wage subsidy for some of those employees and maybe not others depending on um, the interaction with the CERB if they've been receiving that and all that kind of fun stuff but I think the typical considerations in terms of recalling employees back to work would apply in the situation. It's just kind of a messy situation being
1: in. And in, in Pervish, I think I'll have you, if, if to the extent that you can answer this one, do we know anything about the, the kind of actual application process? So if we're a nonprofit board or nonprofit childcare, who is actually going to put in the application, and what kind of information are we going to need to provide to the government to make the application? And in particular, do we need to provide SIN numbers or business numbers or anything like that?
2: So going back, going back to one of the questions, uh, like like in terms of uh, like one one, I would know we don't know what the actual application is going to look like or what information they're going to request from us. However, when you are trying to register your childcare center for uh, my business account—it's—it's it's CRS administrative position to ask for SIN number for one of the board members uh, to open the to open the the my business account. The administrative position exists because if you were a for-profit business, they do want the owner's CPP uh, sorry uh, EI uh, SIN number because on the for-profit side. What it allows CRA to do, and I cannot speak on this for -for not-for-profit side, but I'm trying to address this answer indirectly, is if you, the EI and CPP remuneration or the the portion of EI and CPP, they're called in-trust accounts by CRA. So if you're a not-for-profit and you have a payroll, those EI and CPP amounts, we cannot put it on the executive director because they are management. Someone on board is responsible for remit. Like as a board, you. You need to remit that amount, and CRA needs to contact someone in the event there is an issue, for example. Uh, but that is more of an administrative position of CRA uh, on the not-for-profit side. I have not, I have not been witness to a CRA ever contacting any board member personally. In my experience, I haven't seen that. But to open the my business account, yes, you do need you do need to provide a SIN number for one of the board members.
1: Thanks, Purvish. That's helpful. Brendan, I want to come back to you because you mentioned earlier you, you gave some uh, information about the, uh, the, the loan program and a question that's in the QA. and uh, Would you advise generally for a nonprofit daycare at this point to access that loan to cover payroll, to cover uh, paying the employees and then uh, assume that you'll qualify for the CEWS um, to, to be able to pay back that loan.
5: Yeah. And I, I just go back to my former comment just was the, uh, just being that I think that's a bit risky. Um, I'd like to see the, the, the liability issues that go along with this loan. And again, I, th- I still think that this loan isn't a big enough loan that would, sort of make this uh, a game changer for organizations out payroll. $40,000, um, I'm thinking, for at least for most of my clientele, that might be uh, two payrolls, might be one. Um, I'd want to know what the liability is for the directors. Um, and uh, so I, I, you know, I think my overarching... Comment for all the questions I've had today are is just going to be and Pervicious said this is just this is really a lot of case by case stuff. Um, you've got to assess who uh, the folks are on the board, who management is, um, and uh, what their what their solvency is, um, what their financial management is like, um, and uh, it's really difficult to sort of give a a big blanket sort of answer to some of these for every that applies to everybody. Um, I, I do give some different answers to different clients based on, on a number of qualitative factors. So, um, I guess my, my short, the short answer for the loan thing is if I was a, a childcare treasurer or a supervisor, I would probably be a bit leery of it. Um, but that's not to say that you can't do it. Um, you know, that, that's an operational decision. That's going to be a, a risk-based decision of management and the board. Um, if this was, uh, ironically a larger number, I think, I think we've got a, a better conversation.
1: Thank you for that, Brandon. I appreciate it. Uh, uh just, a, so just
5: one, one other thing is the irony of this whole thing is it's kind of like borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, you know, the government's going to uh, provide money from the left so that you can then reimburse them back from the right. So um, I think the loan is kind of a weird way of, uh, uh, of doing that, but anyway, that's fine. Sorry.
1: Nope. That's great. Thanks, Brendan. Uh, Christina, I was going to ask you, do we have, uh, another question out of the, out of the queue that you, uh, would like to address?
0: Uh, so I've been, uh, been scrolling through, so we, we have covered a good number of, uh, of these questions in in some form at this point. So just going through now. And I've seen a couple questions, and Pravish, you might be the best uh, to speak to this about the the timing periods uh, for the eligibility periods for the CEWS and how those timing periods are affected by employees who are maybe recalled at different times my uh, apology I apologize, I apologize. My, my question and answer screen is glitching somewhat
2: okay so on on that matter in terms of how the, it will interact is I will go back to this. This is this is a little bit uh, a little bit granular detail, but it's a it's an it's an extremely important piece of detail in this in this issue for CWS is the way the legislation is worded is unique. Uh, an employee cannot go without 14 consecutive days without remuneration in that eligibility period. So, if we take the period which we are in currently, which is April 12 to May 9. What the CWS program is asking us, or I should say, this is my impression of what the CWS program is asking us to do, asking employers to do, is reinstate the employee on May or on April twelve to May nine and pay them the salaries that they have earned. And it is per eligibility period, so you may have we may have laid off a certain childcare center may have laid off employees up to April eleven, and they have in. Brought the employees back on April 12, or maybe today, April 16. You meet, the employee needs to have 14 days of compensation to be eligible for CWS. Uh, a very unfortunate part of this, the way that language is structured in the legislation, is it requires each childcare center to look at the remuneration paid to each employee to understand if those wages will qualify for CWS or not. So. I apologize for this, but it is a case by case analysis where we need to understand what were the, what was the, the working days that the employee worked and when did they actually get paid? Because the eligibility period talks about 14 days without remuneration, but the CWS is based on the amounts paid. So that may, that unfortunately requires an additional level of analysis to ensure that your employees are qualifying for CWS weight subsidy. It may not be uniform across the board. To go back to my previous example of 15 employees, if you brought back four employees on a certain date, so I'll, I'll use the example April 12, you brought four employees back on April 12 and they were working on the payroll up to May 9th, they would qualify. But if the remaining 10 employees, if you brought them back first time, that's shorter than 14 days then their wages may not qualify. At this point we're still developing the model to capture what the legislation is asking us to do in terms of which employees qualify for the wage subsidy or which don't. For the purposes of this call I will say it, it does unfortunately require a case-by-case analysis for each employee to understand if they will qualify for the wage subsidy or not.
1: So Thanks, Pervish. That's, that's really that, helpful. Um, I, I want to kind of throw it back to – sorry, Parvish, do you have more? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I want to throw it back to Charles, I think, because there there is an interesting question that I saw in the uh, chat that I think is worth um, uh, getting into uh, on the video, and that is about reinstatement of employees. Uh, Now, you know, I mentioned that I've been entering into some letters of understanding, and in those letters of understanding, we've set out specifically. And letters of understanding work when you have uh, a union that you're dealing with, and it's basically a letter that gets appended to the collective agreement where both sides say, This is what we agree we're going to do in these circumstances. And when I've been doing those lately, I've included reinstatement protocol. So, This is how, you know, on such and such date or whenever we're allowed to reinstate, here's how we're going to do it. But is there generally any rules that the employer has to follow with respect to who gets reinstated when?
4: So uh, the answer there's so, I mean, I guess there's several answers. In the absence of any collective agreement, contract, policy, anything like that. It's uh, management rights, basically. Uh, Whatever you have to do in order to um, operationalize, then that's what you can do. If there is some sort of other document that specifies that you have to recall an order of seniority um, or based on skills, abilities, that kind of thing, then that would be in place. But you can also, there is also the option, Given these extraordinary circumstances, you could also enter into agreements with um, unions and agree on letters of understanding to change that um, process the way that it's set out. But that you'd have to have, obviously, the agreement and support of the union to be able to do that. But in, in general, it'll be operational demands. So, um, obviously, we have lots of other clients in different industries and they have some of the aspects of their businesses are more affected than others so if they get into recalling when things ramp up again then they'll be recalling first in the areas where they can start business up again and then the rest will kind of come along with it but in in general i don't i don't least i'm not aware of any common law rule or uh provision in the appointment standards act that would dictate something like that
1: and Christina, let me throw this one over to you. Our understanding of the wage subsidy so far: uh, do we do we have to have the employers doing their full duties? Do we have to pay them their full regular salary, or do we have some wiggle room in how we uh, pay our employees during crisis? Thanks, Mike. Um, so I
0: think the the answer to this one as with the other starts with, you know, it, it may depend and things might change if we get some clarification about the language of best efforts. Uh, but what we have available to us right now is that employers presumably can recall employees at 75% of their regular wages, if that's all that's doable with the subsidy, uh, but are required to make best efforts to top up salaries to their pre-crisis levels. Uh, there's no details uh, of course provided as to what best efforts means as to how that will be assessed or even if that will be assessed. Um, So so for now it's something of a question mark uh, but certainly there is no obligation to take employees to hundred percent of their pre-crisis compensation and with respect to the amount of work being done Uh, You you certainly don't have to have employees at their their regular duties, because that would be uh, impossible in the childcare setting. Uh, You can have them do some minimal amounts of work. For example, uh, some clients who I've spoken to, teachers have expressed interest in, say, video chatting with students, doing some programming, some PD. Uh, So that is a possibility. And again, as we've been saying, it's just up to each individual center to determine Uh, using their their judgment, what works best for them in terms of having employees do work or accessing those potential uh, CCPEI rebates.
1: And let me bring this back to you, Christina. Uh, If the crisis continues, like we expect it will, and we have employees in the childcare sector who have been off work for 13 weeks, do we have to nominally reinstate them so we're not offside the Employment Standards Act?
0: So again, I think the very satisfying answer is uh, it it may depend. I think, as Mike, as you said earlier, uh, if the closure continues and employees are frankly unable to be uh, recalled, putting aside for the moment the uh, availability of the wage subsidy, then it's difficult to say that there needs to be sort of a performative recall to disrupt that 13 weeks.
1: Oh, are we losing Christina? Uh, Uh, I think we've lost Christina's. that,
0: That we've been giving is that the declared.
1: Yeah, we can hear you now.
0: Oh, okay um so i'm not sure how far back i i cut out
1: well i think what you were saying and i think you hit the nail right on the head is that if you look at the language of the employment standards act it says that i mean it has the definitions of what is and is not a layoff and weeks where the employee is not able or available to work do not count as layoff weeks the practical reality is an employee could make their application through the Ministry of Labor that they've been improperly laid off and terminated, and the employer would have the opportunity to respond and say, no, we're a child care provider and the government has told us we're not allowed to operate. So this employee was not available for work, so this does not constitute a week of layoff, regardless of whether we've been paying them. All right. We are at... Uh, it's 2.34 now, so we've gone uh, a little bit more than an hour and a half, but we still have almost a full house of our participants, so this is fantastic. So let's take a look at the Q&A and see if we have any more questions that we can get into
3: uh, One other right one. Now. Sorry, Mike, I'm going to jump back in for a second. Um, one other one that I recall receiving ahead of time, and I can't, uh, honestly, as we've been going through all the questions and answers in the queue, uh, I saw it come up as well. And I don't know if it was addressed in full, and I apologize if it has been, but we discussed the uh, records of employment. As we know, currently, to just apply for the CERB, employees don't need one. Um, But at some point in the future, we expect there will be a reconciliation from the government, and there will have to be something about that. Um, And Charles, I know you and I talked about this, so maybe you can share your thoughts on um, the importance of ROEs. What happens if... An employer has laid, off some, laid somebody off and then recalls them. What do they do with that ROE? And Pervish, I know we talked about the, the implications for eligibility for EI and so on, because if this goes on and as it stands right now, the CERB is only available um, for a defined term and, and the government has specifically said after that time, employees will go on EI. So can we just talk a little bit about ROEs, their importance and, and what it means you know, kind of down the line?
4: So ROE's, obviously I think as everyone knows, um, I'm not an expert on ROE's, but obviously they would typically issue them to employees during um, permanent or temporary periods where they're going to be off work for whatever reason, and then you'd want that to match with the the reason here. So I can't remember the actual codes. Um, I don't know if someone else on here has that information about how we've been advising people. but. shortage of work I think is what we've been telling people and then I think if something changes so example if we call employees back and then something else happens then I think at that point it would be prudent probably to update ROEs as those kinds of situations evolve because in the normal course what the ROE actually says can actually affect uh, a worker's ability to access certain types of benefits and that's kind of not something that's been addressed, uh, as far as I know, in much of the communications from the government. I don't know, Purvis. You have any other insight on that?
2: So yeah, so, so I agree with your assessment, and and, and yes, actually, Service Canada directed us to use shortage of work for for the situation that you just mentioned. Um, and furthermore, to that, at this point, it is unclear because in Ontario, at least, depending on the work region, we have uh, an. Eligibility required to obtain EI of 700 hours uh, to to make your EI claim. Where this become where this potentially may become an issue, and the childcare centres need to be cognizant of this is if you bring back employees to on, on your payroll, and the only way you can afford the employees is with the CWS wage subsidy. And on June 6th, as currently the program of CWS runs out on June 6th. So after June 6th, if you do not have the cash reserve to make additional payroll payments, uh, and you laid those employees off, there is a question mark currently in terms of what do you do with their ROE? Are you going to amend the original or are you going to have to issue a new ROE? And I'll defer to the lawyers on this one because to the best of my understanding, the ESA doesn't seem to have been updated or provided any clarity to us in terms of what we, are, we will be allowed to do. And that is sort of an unaddressed issue at this point. Um, that is the best, that is my understanding right now. And uh, Kelsey or uh, Charles can perhaps speak to that, but that's my understanding that at this point we don't have clear direction in terms of how to process the next ROE or to amend the ROE that was previously provided. Right.
3: And I think so. I mean, that's something obviously to monitor and, and, um, you know, thankfully, it's not something that we have to necessarily deal with right away uh, with respect to if we have to issue another ROE in in the future when we bring people back. However, as any of you who've heard me speak before and any of you who have probably ever talked to a lawyer before, documentation is key. And in this case, we have two reasons that we want to make sure that whatever we do is is the most prudent course of action. And um, the first being, we don't want to affect uh, our eligibility for the CEWS if somehow um, the government comes looking and says, well, look, you gave this person an ROE, uh, they collected CERB, then you brought them back, you're just gaming the system, and, and then we're worried about that. We want our documentation to line up with what our best information and in our course of action was at the time. So, you know, as we know, we are directed to to use shortage of work for those ROEs that have been issued, and and we should have. Um, the second issue is, of course, with respect to any kind of constructive dismissal claim or other uh, employment-related claims that go around ROEs. We want to make sure that if we are relying on the leave of absence or a paid absence, um, that any documentation reflects that. And so you know, on a case-by-case basis, again, we're gonna have to look at, well, what do we actually do and, and what do the documents reflect and where does that um, leave us as an organization in terms of uh, either you know, potential scrutiny from CRA or um, a potential claim from an employee who we may not be able to bring back at the end of things. So that's the, those are the considerations, and we'll have to kind of work that out as we go forward. As Pravish said, we don't have any additional clarity at this time about ROEs um, and or what will happen if and when, as currently scheduled, the CERB and the CEWS programs end on the dates that they're currently set to end, and we revert to um, you know, the regular EI system. Okay. Oh, and I should, so I did want to clarify one other thing as well. Um, And thanks to Basil for this, but apparently I'm, I'm wrong about whether or not ROEs are required for CERB applications, because as of today, um, you are being asked for an ROE when applying. I don't know this um, myself. I have not applied, but um, Basil uh, Malamis has informed us that that's the case. So, um, you know, we'll, We'd at least need to make sure that the ROEs we're issuing at this end of things match up with, with what uh, what the true story is, and that we're not trying to um, game the system. So then that goes back to the point we were discussing, and uh, and we talked about our advice with respect to CWS and bringing everybody back regardless, and not wanting to appear to game the system because obviously part-time employees who could make more on the CERB might be better off, but you know there's a concern about, about that from our perspective as employment lawyers that uh, we don't want to um, look like we're picking and choosing when it might affect our eligibility for the CWS uh, and or affect how the government views our use of the CWS after the fact. So I don't know if anybody else has had a chance that's that's the most talking I've done in a long time today, so I apologize for that everyone um, Mike you're I doing don't great, go,
1: Kelsey. why don't you keep on going for a bit
3: <laughs> well i i uh, I was just going to ask if anybody's seen any more of the uh, questions there that we want to address. I think a lot of the um, the pre webinar questions that we received have been addressed in our materials um, Let's see as we scroll through here. Maybe I can just pick out a random one. Um, but I think we we will try to wrap up in the next little bit. As Mike said, we still have the vast majority of people on here, and it's great. Um, and you know we're we're happy to to keep going. But I'll also recognize that at some point people <laughs> may start to lose interest. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there are so many questions we don't know still about the the wage subsidy process because the portal hasn't even opened to see what an application looks like.
4: Um, So actually, I've got a couple in front of me here, Kelsey. Okay,
3: Um, go for it, Charles.
4: One, so I'm sorry, I'm not sure, it looks like Ev, Ev asked the question, is it fair to say we should wait in case more announcements are made and if applicable back pay employees under CDWS? I think wherever possible, if you can wait on something like this, it's probably a good idea to do that if you can because this like we said the stuff we're talking about right now could be different this evening could be different tomorrow almost certainly will be different next week so I've always been trying to tell people to the extent you can whenever you're communicating to employees leave yourself an out somewhere saying that this is all based on information we have right now it's subject to change and like someone said earlier if if you have employees asking you questions about how do I apply? What do I do? What do? Yada, yada, yada. Be very careful about what you're telling them because you don't want to be... It's okay to say you don't know because that's the right answer in many cases. So waiting is definitely prudent where it's possible. We understand that's not always possible. And to a certain extent, you've just got to get the information to make the best decision that you can right now and that might change later. It might not look like the best decision three months from now, but uh, to a certain extent, a lot of this is going to be making hard decisions and figuring out how to deal with the consequences later.
5: I, I can add to that if you like. Please do. Um, so I've just got a question from one of my clients just about um, uh, something quite specific to the, to the childcare centers. And that's just communication with the city of Toronto. And, uh, I did bring up before that it's going to be important to, you know, in terms of figuring out what the, what for highly subsidized centers, what, uh, the March and, uh, April, uh, advances are in fee subsidy, what those things actually are. Um, I was uh, speaking with my, my partner, Stephanie Chung today as well, about, about how to communicate our feelings on, on, uh, revenue recognition and um, among other things. Um, there's still a lot of fog. And uh, what what we're finding um, from speaking with our clients is that the city of Toronto is not really uh, communicating well at all with our clientele. So um, my client who I was just uh, looking at her email just now, last time they heard from them was April 3rd. Um, and without you know disparaging the workers at the city of Toronto as it relates to uh, Toronto Children's Services, they, you know, the consultants aren't accountants, uh, and the financial folks that are there, a lot of them don't have strong accounting backgrounds either. So, you're gonna need to take a bunch of opinions when you're forming a, a decision as to whether you're gonna take advantage of this wage subsidy or not. You're gonna hear stuff from the lawyers, you're gonna hear stuff from, uh, Pervish, you're gonna hear stuff from me, you're gonna hear stuff from, potentially your city of Toronto advisor. Um, and, and with that, you're gonna have to make operational decisions. And um, it's, gonna be, uh, it's gonna be a real challenge. Um, in terms of uh, the, the, the way forward, um, let's just say that your center qualifies, they're eligible. Um, a, big, a big piece of the puzzle for you going forward is gonna be uh, the, the quality of your financial management. There's a lot of bells and whistles to this. Um, most of the financial management that you have right now is, is, uh, is predictable. You know, you've got your grants that you've had over the years. You've got regular payroll you've had over the years. Um, you've got regular expenses. You've got a routine with your accountant. Um, and this is going to throw a wrench in it. So it's, I think it's going to be important to, to lay out a plan specifically around the amount of time that your accountant has to devote to your center to help you with this find out if they can help you with this um, or if they if they want to help you with this. Um, in term, and when I say uh, help with this, I mean, you know, uh, engaging directly in the portal uh, or uh, uh, maintaining your books and records. And so, um, as Kelsey said before, documentation is going to be key. Uh, and it is going to be key f- from an accounting perspective as well, maintaining quality records, maintaining quality working papers um, that will stand up, um, uh, potentially months, potentially a couple of years down the road by the time they have a chance to audit this. Um, I don't think that you should be losing sleep at night, that um, you're not going to be in compliance and that you're going to get massive fines and all this sort of stuff. You know, uh, again, common sense prevailing here, doing your best with the information that you have um, and moving forward, I think is going to be the, the prudent way to do this.
3: thanks brendan and so i think we should probably wrap it up and i'll try to answer a couple more questions that are in the pipeline and i just want to be make sure that we're all clear and i'll get purvish and uh, brendan to back me up on this but going back over eligibility for the CEWS, it is not about individual employees and whether or not they are working the eligibility for the cws is based on The criteria that Pravish outlined earlier, which are have to do with the revenue and revenue loss of the employer, where we're talking about people working or not working has only to do with a secondary element of the CEWS, which is the government introduced uh, when they passed the legislation on the weekend, an additional refund for the employer portions of employment insurance, and CPP contributions only where those employees are not doing any work. So that's all that that is about. It's not about the employer's eligibility for CWS CEWS. CEWS, or wage subsidy eligibility, is not based on individual employees and whether or not they worked for some portion of an eligibility period. The eligibility for that period is based on the revenue analysis that Pravish outlined earlier.
2: Um, I see Pravish nodding his head. Uh, that, that's correct. And, and so, 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 breaking the program down into two phases. So, the first phase is in terms of as a childcare center as an employer, do I qualify for the weight subsidy? That test is revenue based. Period. So, your as long as your revenue declined by fifteen percent for the for the first period, which is Sorry, one second, I seem to look at the exact dates, one second. Um, as long as your revenue declined by 15% for March 2020, you are fine. For April and May, your revenue needs to have been declined 30%. As of right now, we can only look at the first period, which is which is the March 15, uh, March 2020 period. So in that event, if your revenue did decline 15%, yes, you as a center would qualify for the CWS program. Now, when it comes to actually claiming the grant, sorry, claiming the wage subsidy, at that point we have to start looking at if the employees were laid off or were they working, or you left them on payroll, continue paying them. And at that point is when we have to now look at, do those wages qualify to get the 75% wage subsidy or not? And this is where the complexity lies because of the wording of the legislation which requires Employees to have not gone more than uh, not have gone not gone more than 14 or more days without remuneration. So, if you laid off employees on March 15th, for example, and you did not make any payments, any payroll payments to them between March 15 and April 11, you do not have a CWS claim because you didn't make any payment to your employees. That is the I think I think that is what's causing the confusion here. Um, because your employees need, you need to pay your employees to claim CWS. If you laid them off in that time period, then we did not be as employers, did not make any payments to our employees. So if you did not make any payroll payments, you don't, there's no claim to be made. I, I believe that, is, that, may be, that may be the cause of uh, the, the potential confusion here regarding when we talk about eligibility for the program. This is eligibility to claim the seventy-five
3: percent. Right. Yes, and and of course that depends on whether people have gone back and rehired people retroactive to the any date within that eligibility period. And and
2: and again, when would where so so when we talked about some uh, major employers who it's in newspapers and so forth and in media to say they went back and hired all their employees, that's fine, but the way the legislation reads right now is you're supposed to if you didn't pay them you cannot go back and retroactively hire them you can retroactively hire them in the period that you are in right now so the current period is april 12 to may 9 so yes if you retroactively potentially can hire back employees on april 12 but if you, if you had laid off employees on march 15 as it stands right now my understanding is you cannot retroactively hire them beginning april, march 15 and claim that you paid them the funds because they went 14 days without remuneration, 14 or more days without remuneration. And the, the the discrepancy or the final point here is what the government seems to be doing here is to say if your employee went 14 or more days without remuneration, theoretically that employee qualified for the served benefit. So they don't want you double dipping on that. And the exact mechanics unfortunately are still new to us and we don't know how they are going to enforce this.
3: Yes thank, thank you so much and that actually segues perfectly into uh, how I want to wrap all of this up because uh, at the end of the day I mean you've got a lot of information today but there's still a lot that is lacking um, and even with respect to you know some of the questions we did answer um, there are going to be nuances subtleties and differences from employer to employer and situation to situation. So it really does depend, Uh, Brendan mentioned it, you know, get the proper advice from your bookkeepers, accountants, auditors, and lawyers before you make any decisions, right? I mean, we're trying to arm you with the information to ask the right questions and some of the more straightforward stuff, obviously, um, you know, that, that helps. But uh, at the end of the day, I mean, there's no liability for not applying for wage subsidy and that was i know that's one of the questions that people have been getting and certainly there's a lot of pressure from um, in the unionized uh, world the unions are saying why aren't you doing this why haven't you done this already well you know what um, you'll never hear from a lawyer that you should act first and get advice later um, that is a, a terrible way to do business and leaves you exposed every which way So, you know, there isn't any particular liability attached to not applying, um, whereas there could be bad and unintended consequences for making a a precipitous decision at any point in this process. And it is frustrating and it's frustrating for employees, but um, I think Charles mentioned it, that you know, the communication to your staff um, with unions or third parties that are involved about, look, here's where it stands, Here's where we think we're going in the short term, but it's all subject to change, as we know from, uh, from previous discussions. So um, with that said, um, there have been questions as well as to whether or not um, we'll be able to get copies of this to everybody and copies of all the questions and answers. I don't know exactly what um, the, the publishing capabilities of this are, other than I know that we will be able to publish our recording on our website. Um, and uh, and we will be able to send follow-up emails with links to that. So that's what I will definitely commit to. If there's another way to publish the question and answers um, separately or only, we will absolutely endeavor to do that. But uh, for the moment, I just want to thank everybody um, from Mike for taking over the host duties while I uh, dealt with some internet failures, Christina and Charles for your continued Dedication and work, and uh, Brennan and Pravish for jumping in and uh, saving our bacon because we would not have been able to address these various technical and, and um, quite frankly uh, mind boggling questions at times without, uh, without you guys here. So, really appreciate it. And of course, to all our participants, uh, thank you so much for joining us and for sticking around. So, thanks everybody. Have a great day and, and stay safe, and we'll talk again. Oh, and one last thing, I mentioned it in the chat. Um, We are sending out updates that are specific to the childcare sector. So just email info at ccpartners.ca and ask to be added to the daycare list. And then there's a link, or there will be a link on our website to join the general blog list, which sends out all all of our blogs, which are normally only weekly, but uh, during these times uh, are sometimes twice and thrice daily. So thanks everyone. Have a great day. Thank you.